Good morning. Our scripture reading is uh, from Hebrews chapter 7 and includes several passages. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christian, and again, welcome this morning. Uh, so glad to meet you if this is your first time here with us today. Uh, my name is Pastor Gray, and uh, we have been going through a series together on the kingship uh, theme that we find in the scriptures. So just a five-week series here looking at uh, the kings, the desire for a king. Really, the whole second half of the Bible is really about this idea of who's going to be the king in Israel. And we have said multiple times that we're looking for a different king than what we got from the first kings. Israel wanted a king. Part of that desire was good. Part of that desire was mixed. And yet what they got was Saul first, and then David, and then Solomon. These were men that were appointed by God. They were indeed God's elect kings. And yet they failed to be the king that that. that Jesus was to be. They failed to be the king that we are looking for. Today, uh, we are beginning to land the plane. We're actually going to do one more sermon in this series on Christmas Day. We're going to look at the Magi, the kings of this earth, who come and acknowledge the king on Christmas Day. So next week, we'll finish out this series. I added that here at the end. But today, we're talking about Jesus himself as our everlasting king, the king that we are looking for. So let's, before we do that, talk about that this morning. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for your word. Even these uh, longer passages we've read, a passage in Hebrews, somewhat hard to understand in some ways at first reading. 
we know that there is a depth, there is a beauty to your word, there is um, a history and a um, and just a, a deep satisfaction that comes from seeing how you have knit together the story of your salvation. We honor and lift up the name of Jesus Christ today, the King that we are looking for. I pray that we would enthrone him today, that we would be um, pleased to bow before him, give him our gifts and our offerings and our love and our devotion, because this King has given everything to us. And so we honor him, we praise you, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. So um, I remember when I was younger, I heard a, a Norse fairy tale that really captured my imagination. It was actually a Christmas story, um, I guess in the, in the same sense that many of the movies today that reference Christmas are now considered Christmas movies, right? Uh, there's debates about that. What makes a Christmas movie? Well, this is apparently a Christmas Norse tale, although really it just happens around Christmas. Uh, it, the, the story is called Why the Sea is Salt, and uh, maybe you're familiar with this story, but um, there's different versions of it out there, but the version that I read that I remember when I was a kid was, there was a poor man who's desperate for Christmas dinner. It's, he's you know, with his wife, they have nothing uh, for Christmas, and through a series of circumstances, he ends up with a magic grinding mill, this little mill that it grinds and it produces whatever you desire. And so you tell the mill to grind and it grinds out whatever you want. And so he is delighted to find that he can have Christmas dinner. He tells the mill to grind out um, their dinner and the, the lights that they need and um, the tablecloth. And of course, this is just the beginning of his prosperity. As he tells the mill to grind even more things, he sells them, he becomes wealthy. Near the end of the story, a merchant comes to him to buy the mill, and he produces enough stuff for himself that in the end, he sells the mill to the merchant, this magic mill, and the merchant is a salt merchant. This is what he does. He goes and collects salt from the sea and comes back and sells it. Well, he gets this magic mill thinking, well, now I don't have to cross the sea anymore. I can simply tell it to grind the salt, and then I will sell it here, and that will be the end of all of my travels. But he's afraid that the first man who owns the mill will change his mind, so he quickly grabs the mill after paying for it and runs away without hearing how to stop it. He takes it out to sea with him and tells it to grind salt. And I think you can see where the story goes. He can't tell it to stop. And so his boat fills up with salt. It sinks and the mill goes to the bottom of the ocean where even to this day it is cranking out salt. And that is why the sea is salt. That's a good story. I love that story. Um, and, I, and I loved it. And I remember the details of it, I think, more than other types of fairy tales. Even when I heard it when I was younger, I knew it was a fairy tale, of course. But I heard other origin stories, right? How does a zebra get his stripes? You know, how did the fox get his tail? These types of other stories that are origin stories. But this one I remember more, and I was trying to think this week, why is it that I remember this story so well? And I think that part of the answer is that so many origin stories seem to be about a single event, 
that then we're somehow supposed to make the leap then to understand, well, then by, by generations, then, you know, suddenly the zebra that got painted black or something, now all zebras are black and white stripes or something like that. The single event that somehow changes. But here is a story that it becomes clear how its truth, so to speak, is true eternally. It's not just that a big you know, thing of salt dropped into the ocean, but that we have a reason to understand, if we believe the fairy tale, why the ocean not only is salt now or then, but is everlasting saltiness. It continues on and on. Why it continues, that's why I think it's a better story. We've needed a better story for kingship in Israel's history. We've needed to see something better than what we have seen. And what I've labored to tell us is that what we've seen has been good. Saul was God's anointed king who was obedient until he wasn't. David was a faithful king of Israel who committed great unfaithfulness. Solomon was wise until his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. And what we need is a better story than these kings. These good stories, we need a better one. Because as much as we talked about their individual failings and how these kings did not live up to what the idea of kingship is, there's actually something that ties them together that makes the whole thing a failing project from the beginning. Yes, Solomon was unwise. Yes, David was unfaithful. Yes, Saul was disobedient. But there's actually something that ties them together that means that they will not be our eternal forever king. The reason is they died. They died. And so I think we've known, even as we've talked about these things, and I've said, well, could David be our king? You know that there's almost like a rhetorical nature to that. You know that David is not going to be your king. We know this internally because David is not here. He died. How could he in any sense be our king? We're meeting a king today that's not just a king once, wasn't just crowned once, but actually is a king forever. He has an indestructible life. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 16 says, who became a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Powerful phrase. Jesus is the king that we are looking for because he has the power of an indestructible life. He lives. He never dies. And so, You know, our allegiance to a king is as long as they are alive. And Jesus is an everlasting king. We sing about this this time of year, Handel's Messiah. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and he shall reign reign forever and ever. That's how long his reign is. He is our king forever. There are three things I want us to see about his indestructible life First, his name is forever. Second, his perfection is forever. And thirdly, his intercession is forever. First, his name is forever. 
Jesus is compared here in this passage to the priest Melchizedek. Look at with me in the verse, first three verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth of part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Now, one of the first questions you may be asking is, why are we talking about a priest when we're talking about a series in the Kings? Because Melchizedek, who resembles Jesus Christ, we're told in this passage, is both, like Jesus, a priest and a king. And in fact, that becomes the most central thing to know about them. They are both royal priests or priestly kings, I guess you could say, either way. This is what we need to know about Melchizedek. That's a strange name. This is someone that many of us perhaps don't know very much about. Uh, So far, I haven't heard anybody, any hipsters naming their kids Melchizedek either. That's one of the the Bible names that's unused as of yet, if you're, if you're thinking about that, um, I think it would be great because Melchizedek is an amazing figure in the story of the Scriptures, although it is very... Thank you so much. It is, um, it is, these are strange occurrences where it happens. Only three places in Scripture is Melchizedek mentioned. Genesis chapter 14, where we have the story of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, written by David, who says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and then the book of Hebrews, which we read today. The story in Genesis 14 goes like this. Abraham and his nephew Lot have have divided up. Lot has gone off to Sodom, and Abraham, the patriarch, is living elsewhere, and, and there's this war that arises, four kings versus five kings. These different townships around where they live, there's a battle, and the four kings prevail, but, but Lot is in Sodom where, the, where one of the five kings is, so Sodom is taken over, and, and Lot is captured. He's taken off by the captors, and, and Abraham, his uncle, hears about this and then goes and rescues him. He gathers up 318 fighting men. And then goes and captures back all of the plunder and all of the people that have been taken from Lot's family. And he brings them back. And, he, and then he gives back the stuff that has been taken to the king of Sodom. Now, that's the story. What does that have to do with Melchizedek? Well, interjected into that story is this really strange part of the story that where, the, where Melchizedek, the priest, comes out of nowhere... And, and ministers to Abraham. So Abraham has captured all this stuff back, but he hasn't yet given it to the king of Sodom. And Melchizedek comes and gives him bread and wine and refreshes him. And Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils that he's taken back. And it's just this strange little story. And what the author of Hebrews does, whoever that is, is he looks at that story and then he looks at what, how that became important to David and he draws out a couple of things about the name 
of the royal priest forever. These are a couple of things that he says. His name is important and his lineage. These are going to be the important things about Jesus Christ, the royal priest after the order of Melchizedek. First, his name. The translation of his name, the author of Hebrews says in verse... um, Well, let's just read the first one here. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, met Abraham, and uh, he is first, I'll skip down a little bit to verse 2, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. Now, what the author of Hebrews is doing there is just taking the name Melchizedek and breaking it down. It's made up of two Hebrew words, Melech and Zedek. Melech means king, Zedek means righteousness, like Zedekiah. It's, it's the word for righteousness. So he's just looking at his name. The name means king of righteousness. And then he also says, but he's also identified as the king of Salem. And the word Salem, just like you might know, like shalom, means peace. And so he is the king of righteousness who reigns over the king of peace or the king of Salem. He's making a translation argument. He's looking back at the Genesis story, and he's saying, by description of his title and by location of his rule, this is the king of righteousness and the prince of peace. And then the author of Hebrews further is saying, and later in Psalm 110, which was written by David, David used this story to talk about his own line of kings. David sees himself in this story. As David writes, he says, well, now I am the king of Salem, now called Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And in Psalm 110, he writes this royal priestly psalm about the coming Messiah. And he says that this one who is coming will be after the order of Melchizedek. He will be the king of righteousness and the prince of peace. And this theme just goes throughout, even the prophets. Let me give you an example. Isaiah chapter 9, very familiar this time of year. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, the Prince of Peace and who will reign with righteousness, this is the Davidic Messiah. This is the coming King. So by virtue of his name he is the, and his location, I guess you could say, he is the King of righteousness and the King of peace. But also Melchizedek, is referenced in Hebrews because of his genealogy. Look at verse 3 with me. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is the only person, Melchizedek, in the book of Genesis without a genealogy. As you know, in biblical history, it matters where you come from. It matters who your father and mother are. It matters also, as we're recorded, not only the names and who begat who throughout the book of Genesis, but also the length of days 
They lived 900 and something years. They lived 600 and something years. These are very important details to the writer of Genesis, but we get nothing when it comes to Melchizedek. When Moses is writing this, he lets Melchizedek look on paper like he has no beginning and he has no end. And so the author of Hebrews is using the scriptures and he's making an argument and he's saying, Jesus is like this priest who has no father and mother in the sense that he, he's not accountable to any one line, but instead is outside the line of history. He is, in fact, everlasting, no beginning and no end. And so then he says, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever, resembling or just like, he is like this. Melchizedek is this type of Christ. Christ looks like him. He looks like Christ. His priesthood is eternal. Now, it's important what we're saying here because maybe you've wondered this before. Jesus is supposed to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. Well, it's somewhat easier to see how Jesus is the king because we know that he is great David's greater son. We know that kings come from lines of kings, don't we? that the son of a king is the king. And David has this great, 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 great grandson named Jesus, so he is the king of Israel. But you know, priests have genetic lines too. Their kids are born and they become priests. Their sons are become priests. And so how is it that Jesus is the priest when he's the son of David and not the son of Aaron, who is the priest? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us it's because Jesus' priesthood comes from before and outside of time. His priesthood is not after the order of Aaron. It's after the order of Melchizedek, who God himself appointed as a priest before Israel was Israel, before Israel even existed, because Abraham was just a family. And so before the priesthood was established, there was a priest appointed by God in the same way Jesus is the priest who stands outside of time, not in a lineage, but as himself, the priest, the royal priest forever. His name is forever. Number two, his perfection is forever. Look at verse 11. This sets up, there's an expectation about this idea of perfection. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest? to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. What about this idea of perfection? The, the priests cleanse the people over and over and over again. And under this Aaronic priesthood, the people received the law, they received the truth, they were cleansed from their sins, and this is what God required. But He's raising a question here that hasn't been answered. Is perfection attainable under the priesthood? Couldn't we just keep doing that? Couldn't we just have a priest cleansing the people's sin? But the obvious answer that he's going to give is, no, that's not going to be possible because perfection is not possible. We need a different kind of priest. Not one after the order of Aaron, but one after the order of Melchizedek. What would this priest look like in terms of his perfection? Look at the beautiful description in verse 26 about Jesus. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That was who Jesus was. He was unstained. He is the perfect priest, and therefore he is in a different priesthood than Aaron. He wasn't a priest, in other words, who had to wrestle with his own weaknesses. He wasn't a priest who had to purify himself as the priest had to do, to, to purify themselves before they could offer sacrifices for the people. He was a priest who was already perfect. And not only that, not only was he unstained, but his sacrifice is once and forever. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. This is a priest who's in a different order than the priest that we've had before. His sacrifice was eternal and effective. It was once for all. He didn't need to sacrifice for himself first, and he didn't need to sacrifice repeatedly. He is the perfect priest forever. His perfection is forever. His name is forever. Finally, his intercession is forever. Look at, with me at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The other priest, like the other kings, had the same problem. They died. But Jesus has the power of an indestructible life. He continues forever. And what that means for us is, first of all, complete salvation. We are able to be saved, he says in verse 25, to the uttermost, to the largest degree, completely, without challenge. When the people of God would come to the priest of the Old Covenant and they would tell them of their sins and they would be forgiven of their sins, surely they still had some lingering questions. Have I confessed enough? Have I been purified enough? What about my thoughts and intentions? How deep should I go with this? What about the ride home from, the, uh, from going offering my sacrifices? And if I sin there, will I remember that next time? What about the priest himself? What if he's not righteous? What if he's one of these sons of priests who is not a great priest? What if he's having a bad day? All of those questions the author of Hebrews tells us, are gone because Jesus doesn't have a bad day. His sacrifice is complete. His, his nature is perfection, and he lives forever. He gives us perpetual interception, intercession. He always leads, lives to make intercession for us. What does it mean to intercede? It means to mediate, to come between, to plead the case. And this is what we're told Jesus does forever. He brings his case on our behalf to the Father, and he does not cease from doing so. As long as he lives, he intercedes. There's never a gap 
in Christ's holy intercession for us. So our salvation is completely secure. This royal priest, in other words, this king and priest has done it all. Let me make the case as we finish out this series officially today and we get some meditation on Christmas morning that we've been building this whole time. What, who is the king that we are looking for? Who becomes the source? Who becomes the goal? Who becomes our authority? Who becomes the thing that we go to for every single thing? The case that we've been building, as you know, is to make Jesus Christ preeminent as the king of our lives. But it's a fair question to ask, why him? Because he alone, throughout all history, past, present, and future, has the power of an indestructible life. As long as a king lives, you give your allegiance to him. That's what happens. The king lives. Oh, may the king live forever. You hear that even in the Bible, right? That's a, it's, as long as you keep living, we'll keep giving our allegiance to you. Well, what if the king never dies? Then this is the king that we serve forever. He's the only one who has the power of an indestructible life. Every other hope just dissolves in the sands of history. Jesus alone is first and last and forever. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost because everything else dies except for him. And yes, Jesus himself died. He died, but he has an indestructible life. The bonds of death could not hold Jesus. He was indestructible in the sense that it could not have his way over him. So he rose from the grave. He conquered it. And now and forever, nothing can touch his life He is everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting. And when we come and bow before this king, we give our lives to him, and we have, the scriptures say, immediate union with Christ, then we share in his indestructible life. His name is forever. Your name is forever will be a generation or two at most. But if your life is bound up with the royal priest, then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and it will never be destroyed. It will live forever. His perfection is forever. Your perfection is completely unattainable on your own behalf. You'll never be perfect. But if you are united to the king, priest, Jesus Christ. God gifts you. He gives you his perfection. And the description of Jesus here in this passage in verse 16, 26, sorry, is true of you. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens because you share in the life of Christ. His intercession is forever. You may confess your sins every week faithfully here, but you will not remember everything, and you will grow weak even of naming your sin. But Christ will never tire of pleading his case before the Father, and he has the authority and the eternal reign to intercede for us forever. This is why he is the king. 
he never dies. Everything that is about him is eternal, and when you are with him, you receive all of that in his name. And as we come to the Christmas week this week and we prepare our hearts, we see that just the tender mystery of Jesus' birth and why there's so much activity around it, why this king brought so much expectation, why Simeon looks at this child and says the words we're going to say in a few minutes here, I can die in peace as I have seen the salvation of the Lord. And Mary can look at this child and ponder these things in her heart, the mystery of the incarnation. And the angels can sing and the shepherds can run and the wise men can seek after and find Jesus and give them their, his, their worship and their gifts to this newborn king because this child will be much more than a great man, much more than a great teacher, much more than a great leader, much more than a prophet or a priest or a king. Israel has had many good leaders in the past. But this child will be all of those things and more because he is from everlasting to everlasting. Everything else will die, will dissolve, will fade. But Jesus is the king forever. And he needs your allegiance. He requires your allegiance forever. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your indestructible life. That you always live. Our lives must be found in you. We pray this morning as we examine our own hearts for faith, that those that do not have faith would find a growing faith in you, that they would unite themselves to you so that they will be, from everlast- they will be everlasting as well, that their life will be made perfect, that you will intercede and plead their case. For those of us who are found in you already, Father, we pray that we would find more and more of our life in you, that we would bow more and more Give more of our identity, even this, this week as we think about all the things that we hope and dream for and look forward to. I pray that we would see those as ultimately things that you are giving us to find in yourself, that we would find life and joy and happiness and truth and good things in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would give you the worship and the honor and the obedience that you deserve and require. And I pray that you would help us to know how to do that, that you would give us this life that is yours. Thank you that in Jesus you have, that you have already secured for us eternal life, life in your son. We give you thanks and praise and honor this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.